Many of you have probably seen that movie, Up. Don't you love it? You're not ready yet for Shady Oaks Retirement Village. Paradise Falls, here we come. I just love the attitude. There's life in the old boy yet. And uh, we're going to talk today a little bit about um, being too old. I'm not quite sure why I get the job with these uh, topics about old, but uh, that's the way it is. I hate the idea of things being useless. I've had a number of cars over the recent years, uh, oldish cars, but I I just hate the idea of just taking that car to the wrecker and getting my $200 or something for it when the car is perfectly drivable, everything's functional, but it's sort of worth nothing. You know, the last two cars I sold, one I did take the wrecker and it grieved me so much, the last two I sold, I spent more money getting roadworthy and everything and, uh, and paying the rego than I did get for the cars when I sold them but I had that sense of here's this useful thing that's still got usable life in it and I'm keeping it going I'm not sending it to the scrap heap but as we get older it's uh I find myself saying quite often it's a young person's world and uh I probably didn't say that 10 years ago but I say it a lot now it's a young person's world when I grew up um when I first worked for Nissan and it was just in the days of of personal computers now young people couldn't imagine a day when there weren't personal computers, but we had these little personal computers that had uh, two floppy disk drives, no hard drive, and we thought we were really it because we had these things and no one else had them, and we learned from the ground up how to use these things. We had this program called Lotus 123, which has been replaced by Excel, Uh, but it was just a a magnificent program. We did these massive uh, spreadsheets about all the things we were planning, and uh, we thought we were pretty good. And so I felt like I'd starting to you know, get into this thing. I got in at the ground level. I should be good. But the generation of children that are coming up today, they do all the things that we had to learn. They do it intuitively. They know how to swipe things. Two-year-olds know how to get into your iPhone. So the world has changed. And as we get older, we can easily feel that our most useful days are behind us. And it can be a sobering thought for us old folks if we allow ourselves to dwell on it for too long. I read a little bit this week about midlife crisis. And uh, some people say it's a bit of a, you know, not, not really real. Other people experience it in a big way and it's a significant, uh, difficult time for them. It was uh, a term that was first coined in 1965 to describe that depressing moment when people become aware of their own mortality and they realise that there's probably less time left to live than the time they've lived already. And uh, that is a... Uh, oh, I'm at that stage. I'm 57 My best years, I could say, are past me. Um, And we ask questions like, have I left a mark? Have I left some sort of a legacy? Have I done things that have been actually useful for society and for people in general? Am I feeling fulfilled? Have I got what I was hoping for out of my life? Is my my body going to hold up for the next 20 to 30 years? A study that uh, looked into what makes uh, a midlife crisis also found that it's, it's creeping up on people at a younger age. They reckon uh, for guys it's about 43. Someone was telling me this week it was 42, and he remembers 42 and it was terrible. Um, 43 for men, 44 for women. But it can happen any t- time between the ages of 40 and 60. Now, I think I'm in denial, but I don't think I've experienced it yet, but I've still got three years to go. Um, so just watch out. Research suggests that it's starting earlier, so maybe I've missed it. But symptoms of uh, a midlife crisis include things like this, worrying about a younger person taking your job, Um, taking up extreme sports, you know, paragliding or something at age 80, going to reunions of your favourite bands from the 70s and the 80s, (laughs) 
Simon and Garfunkel, here we come. <laughs> Reminiscing a lot about your childhood. Do you find yourself doing that if you're in my age group? Buying a very expensive bicycle. <laughs> Suddenly wanting to learn a musical instrument even though you had no interest in music all your life up to this point. Worrying about your thinning hair. Uh, taking up a new hobby. Or I like this one, signing up to Facebook, Google+, LinkedIn, Instagram, Pinterest, Tumblr and Twitter to prove to yourself and others that you haven't been left behind in the digital age. They're the sort of things that are symptomatic of uh, midlife crisis. Surveys suggest that for males it can last for, for, from three to ten years, but uh, women are much more sensible and they usually get over it in about two, or two to five years. A poll of um, a thousand people who attended an English hair transplant centre called Crown Clinic found that the average age of balding men seeking their help to regain a youthful mop of hair was about 45. So it looks like I missed the bus. But uh, I just want to warn you, just because you haven't placed an order for a a new Ferrari or a Harley-Davidson doesn't mean that you've uh, avoided the potential of a midlife crisis. On the the survey of of people experiencing this, the number one wish uh, for people who were questioned was that they wanted a simpler life. Part of midlife crisis was this sense that life has got so complicated and I want it to be simpler. And so if, uh, like me, you've just planted a new vegetable patch in the back garden, that's a prime symptom as well. But midlife can bring, if you like, the perfect storm of life's challenges. For some of us, it's the empty nest. Our children who were dependent on us are no longer dependent on us. It can be ageing parents... And uh, they can, uh, and as Keith expressed so well, we, we want to be able to be there for them because they were there for us. Um, but it can take time and it can take energy and it can be uh, a strain at times. Some of us, our careers might be in the doldrums or else our careers are causing us excessive uh, pressure at this stage of our life. For some of us, it's, it's health issues that are a real strain. But I want to just talk today about Moses in the Bible because I think Moses could be described as the man of the midlife crisis. And I think he had two of them. Now that's unique and he had them about 40 years apart. Uh, But his life divides really logically into three lots of 40. 40, 40 and 40. He lived to 120 years, which was quite an old age. Moses was actually an adopted child, if you like. The Israelites, and Moses was one of them, they were slaves in Egypt. And Israelite boys were to be killed at birth um, because the the growing slave population was seen as a potential threat to Egypt. And so when Moses was born, his mother saw that he was a fine child and she hid him for three months. And when she couldn't hide him any longer, she placed him in a uh, waterproof basket in the reeds along the Nile River. And I'm not quite sure what she was hoping for, but she sent her daughter to keep watch. Now, Pharaoh's daughter, the Pharaoh of Egypt, the number one man, his daughter actually happened to bathe in the river just around that area. And she comes along and she hears the baby crying and she feels pity for the child. And so this Moses, this Moses who had to be almost abandoned by his own parents, is adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And he's raised, without going into detail, he's raised interestingly initially by his mother, who is brought into contact, probably unbeknownst to the, the Pharaoh's daughter, raised by his mother, but raised in uh, the house of Pharaoh. And he's adopted into what was the wealthiest family in Egypt. So an adopted child. He's also privileged. He lives a life of luxury. 
He's 40 years a prince in Egypt. The Bible says that Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. Now, that would have included things like mathematics and chemistry and engineering and architecture and astronomy and poetry and philosophy and music and all sorts of things. He had a wonderful education. If he was alive today, we'd say he had a a degree and he had a PhD and he had an MBA and he he had it all. He'd had an absolutely magnificent education. And according to the um, Jewish historian Josephus, Moses was also a highly decorated military leader and he'd he'd been uh, in charge of Egyptian forces in very successful military Endeavors, And so by virtue of his education and his uh, membership of Pharaoh's family and his military success, Moses may have even been a logical choice to one day be Pharaoh himself. Some historians think that one of the Pharaoh's Ramesses II didn't have any uh, children to succeed him and so Moses was potentially in line. Uh, And so he lived this life of luxury for 40 years. And then all of a sudden, that all changed. You see, despite the privileged background that Moses had had, uh, the, the New Testament sums it up really simply like this. It said, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. You see, he had a strong sense of who he was. He knew he was a Hebrew. And he saw his people suffering under the yoke of slavery at the, at the hand of, of ruthless Egyptians. And he saw himself as God's answer He was confident, he was courageous, he was strong and he thought, this is my calling, I can be their saviour. But he takes things into his own hands and he actually is very hasty and he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew slave and he looks this way and that and then he kills the Egyptian and he hides his body in the sand and he thinks nobody's seen it. But word got out. And so I just want to suggest this is midlife crisis one at age 40. Because it says in in, uh, Exodus 2, it says, When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian, where he sat down by a well. The area where the uh, Israelites were working for the Egyptians was probably potentially 600 kilometres from where he has to flee to in Midian. And so he's a fugitive. He flees from all of the wealth that he had, all of the position that he had, all of the, the luxury that he had. And he goes to this place and he sits on the side of a well. Talk about a midlife crisis. He went from the palace, he he ends up looking after sheep. Palace to the pasture. He went from success to what I guess he would have thought was failure. He went from obviously wealth to poverty, from a life of significance to a life that seemed totally insignificant, from a life where he was free to do what he liked to being a fugitive on the run, uh, from a life which was purposeful to a life which seemed to have no purpose at all. His future at one stage looked incredibly bright and now he didn't seem to have any future at all to look forward to. And it all happens literally overnight. He finds out that Pharaoh wants to kill him and he's on the run and he's away, he's a fugitive. What a change of address. It'd be like moving from government house in Australia with all of the stuff laid on there to running a service station on the Nullarbor Plain or something like that. You just imagine the difference. Totally different. And a change of vocation. He was a leader of men, a mighty military leader and a leader in general. And now all he's doing is leading sheep around a desert. It's hard to picture the sort of crisis that must have been going on in Moses' head. 
And to think that he's come from this position of privilege and power and wealth to now being a nobody. And then the next 40 years of his life are actually summed up in about one paragraph in the book of Exodus. So he had this amazing uh, early life, 40 years of privilege, and then from 40 to 80, this is really what goes on. Now a priest of Midian had seven daughters, so Moses is sitting at the well, priest of Midian had seven daughters, so maybe things aren't going so bad for him. They came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. And some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. And when the girls returned to Ruel, their father, who was also later known as Jethro, he asked them, why have you returned so early today? And they answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And where is he? Ruel asked his daughters. Why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat. So Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage and Zipporah gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. That's pretty much all the Bible says about that next 40 years of Moses' life. And uh, we look at that and we think that's uh, sad. Here's this guy who has incredible potential and he's living now in obscurity. He's totally displaced from his people and he's just waiting um, I dare say he was waiting with a yearning for the freedom of his own people. I believe he never forgot what was going on in, in uh, Egypt and the slavery that his people were enduring. But he had no idea how he could make a difference to that. But I also believe, and as Keith said, all of life is a preparation for, for, for the next stage. I really believe that he was in a place where God was preparing him. I think in those first 40 years he'd become incredibly confident and that was really emphasised by what he tried to do to rescue his people and now he's in a place where he doesn't have any any room at all for for self-confidence he's on his own but I think God's humbling him and causing him to see that he needs to rely on God for everything rather than rely on himself so I just encourage us wherever you are whether you're young or old God has his way of preparing us, doesn't he, through life for all sorts of things that might come our way. And sometimes we think the the times of waiting and and preparation are are boring and uh, meaningless and maybe we we don't think we're at the place where God wants us to be. Number one, God wants us to make the most of every day, but he also wants us to learn through our experiences uh, and to use what he's teaching us in these times that might seem difficult. Uh, as we go into the future. So let's not waste the preparation. And I'm sure Moses didn't want to waste the preparation that had been happening all these years. Well, meanwhile, back in Egypt, years passed and the king of Egypt died. But the Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. And they cried out for help and their, their cry rose up to God. And he looked down on the people of Israel and he knew it was time to act. Just a little... Note that God's still interested in his people and God is wanting to do something about it. Moses had thought 40 years ago that he could do something to free his people and he'd had to flee. And now he's standing at this place in between his present and his future and he comes across the presence of God. And there's this amazing story in the book of Exodus, you might want to read it in your own time, where Moses is confronted by a bush that's burning and it's burning and burning and it's not burning up. And uh, out of that bush, he encounters God. And God speaks to him very powerfully out of that. And he says to him, and I'd say this is crisis number two, he says to him, now go, for I'm sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people out of Egypt. 
How would you feel if you were Moses and you, you received that message? In some ways for Moses, these 40 years or so that he'd spent in Midian had probably been almost like normality and maybe even comfortable at some level. It's everyday sort of life. Sure, he was displaced, but life went on and he has a wife and he's got a family and he's got a job. And Egypt is where he ran away from. And you don't think, tend to think about going back to the place where you're a fugitive from. And so going back to Egypt for Moses is one big challenge as he thinks about this. And so at 80 years of, of age, Moses seems to, to absolutely shy away from this challenge. And these couple of chapters in Exodus 2, 3 and 4 are worth a read just for uh, seeing how much Moses appears to actually shy away from what God's asking him to do. And he says, first of all, he says, Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? You know, I'm just Moses. I'm a fugitive. Who am I? I'm a wanted man over there. And God says to him, I'll be with you, and this is your sign that I'm the one who sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you worship God at this very moment. What incredible reassurance God gives him. It's almost as if the job's done. When you've done it, you'll worship God here. But then he says, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? Will they sort of understand that I'm an Israelite, come to rescue them? Because they thought I was just an Egyptian before. Will they understand that I'm the one who they need to, to follow? Will they actually follow me? And God answers him in this amazing way. God says, I am who I am. When God appeared to him out of the bush, God said to him, I'm, I'm the father of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You know, I'm the God of your fathers. But now he gives himself this amazing eternal name. He says to him, I am who I am. Now, that's a profound name of God. He's saying, I am the eternal God. I'm the God who's from everlasting to everlasting. I am God, the one and only and he's still not satisfied. So he says, what if they won't believe me or listen to me? What if they say the Lord never appeared to you? What if these people who I go to, they're doubting and unbelieving? How am I to convince them that I'm the one? And uh, God gives Moses almost like a, a bag full of tricks that he can show to demonstrate that God is on his side. First of all, he gives him a staff and a snake and it's sort of like Moses can throw one down and pick up the other and then throw it down and pick up the other snake. Staff, snake, staff. Pretty impressive if you wanted to say, well, I'm from God, just look at this. And then he's, he's got this a cloak on and, and he puts his hand in there and it turns leprous, pulls it out. <laughs> leprous, puts it back in, pulls it out, healed. Not a bad demonstration of the power of God. And then he says, just get a bit of water out of the Nile River, throw it on the ground, it turns into blood. And if people are doubting you, just give them some of these demonstrations of my power. Even with that, Moses comes back and he says, Oh Lord, I'm not very good with words. I never have been, and I'm not now. Even though you've spoken to me, I get tongue-tied and my words get tangled. And God comes back and he says, Who makes a person's mouth? You almost sense God getting a little bit upset. Who decides whether people speak or do not speak, hear or do not hear, see or, or, or do not see? Is it not I, God? Now go, I will be with you as you speak. And I will instruct you in what to say. And then at the very end, after all of those sort of reassurances, uh, after God's responded to all of Moses' insecurities, Moses' final comment is, Oh Lord, please send anyone else. So anyone, not me. And so we look at that and we think, here's God 
coming to him this crisis point in his life, age 80. We know that from retrospect, still 40 years of his life left and God giving him a task to do. And Moses, who at 40 was supremely confident, now at 80 is supremely lacking in, uh, in confidence. It's clear that he doesn't want to assume the, the sort of leadership responsibility that God is calling him to. And as you look at this list of excuses that Moses makes, I wonder if any of them seem sort of slightly familiar to you. They seem familiar to me. I, I don't have the ability. God wants me to do such, or you want, suggest I might be able to do such and such, but nah, I haven't got the ability to do that. I, I can't speak well enough, certainly not to lead that group. No, just I can't speak well enough. Or the final one, I, I really don't want to do it. Please don't ask me. Please don't ask me. It's not unusual to begin, I think, with a sense of inadequacy and insecurity in the face of what God has called us to, to do. Um, perhaps you've, you've felt this way at times, but God reassures Moses, and I think he reassures you and me uh, in the process. God says to him, you're not on your own. He says to him, the people who hated you are no longer a threat to you. I'll be with you. I've chosen you for a very important task. And Moses is one of these guys who, as we read the Bible, he finishes well. It's not that the next 40 years aren't without struggle because he's leading a people who don't particularly want to be led. And he has the unenviable job of leading the nation of Israel out of slavery and to the edge of the land that God has promised them. And he does it with skill and he does it all the time depending on God. And so those 40 years of waiting in Midian as a nobody are followed by these 40 years of dynamic leadership under God. And so the last third of Moses' life, from 80 to 120, was undoubtedly the most useful. And in Deuteronomy you read that even at his death it says his eyes were not weak nor his strength gone. So to the very end uh, he was was lively, he finished well. And so I I just want to close with thinking about what made Moses usable, what made him usable. When you, you read the little summary of his life at the end of his life in Deuteronomy, it said there was no one, Deuteronomy 34.10 says, there was no one else like Moses who had a, like a face-to-face relationship with God. He had a face-to-face intimate relationship with God. So I just want to suggest this morning that whoever you are and however, however old you are, a prerequisite to being usable, useful, for God is to have a face-to-face, intimate relationship with God. Now, as I talked about that this morning, for you that might seem really foreign. God has made it possible for us through Jesus to know him personally, to know him in a face-to-face way, to know him in an intimate way. Jesus lived and died and rose again so that we could come to God in that way, so that we could be forgiven for the things that we've done that don't please God and so that we can be brought back into that sort of relationship. No prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. It's a challenge for us, isn't it? Are we, are we working on that intimate relationship that God wants to have with each one of us? Or does God just seem distant over there? I was reading this week about a, a missionary who went to a tribe and uh, they were talking about God and they, they said, where is, where is your God? And they took him up to a high mountain and he said, God is over there. There was this sense that God is way, 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 way away. God isn't way, way away. God wants to be right at the very heart of your life. 
God, by his, his spirit, wants to be present, personally present in your life. He wants to be there to help you uh, to do the things that he calls you to do. So Moses had this sense of, of uh, incredible intimacy with God. And I want to suggest that for us to be usable by God, we need to, to be striving for that. We need to be seeking after that. And it's something that doesn't happen overnight. It first of all begins with a decision to say, God, I want you to take control of my life. I accept what you've done for me in Jesus. But it goes on uh, as a process in our lives to say, hey, God, what do you want me to do each day? How can I have my life totally in your hands? Second thing I want to suggest is to be usable, we need to be teachable. It's terrible when we get to age 57 and we're still making the same mistakes that we made at age 40 and 30 and 20. Uh, God wants us to be teachable. He wants us, for the next however many years we've got, to be learning and using the things that he's taught us. I believe Moses, even though he comes across at age 80 as being terribly insecure, I think it is almost his reluctance is almost a positive because he's come to that point where he realises that he can't do anything on his own. He needs God's help the whole time. And that's really the last point I want to make. There's this sense of dependence. Moses, as he's leading the people later on in the book of Exodus, and they've been rebellious and difficult, um, he comes to God and he says to God, God, if you don't personally go with us, we don't want to go up, for he- up from here. We don't want to leave this place. Don't make us leave this place if you're not going with us. And so I just want to leave that with you as a challenge. I, want, I wonder as we, as we close and we're going to sing a song, um, if you might be just asking God to help you, uh, whatever age you are, to finish well. You know, I reckon when you think about a race, it's great to start a race well, but if we watch any, any sporting race and, and the, the, the team or the, the, the person doesn't finish well, it actually doesn't count for anything. And as we, we, we think about life, it's sad when we see people who start well, but they don't finish well. Wouldn't it be great if uh, this morning, before God, we could resolve that wherever we are in life, we want to finish well? I wonder if you just want to take these things on board. Do you, do you know God personally? Uh, are you learning from life ex- life's experiences? And uh, are you taking God with you everywhere you go? Because without him, you can do nothing.